Welcome to the Food Therapy Podcast, where we talk honestly and openly about mental health, diet culture BS, and food freedom. We're your co-hosts. I'm Brittany Modell, owner of Brittany Modell Nutrition and Wellness. And I'm Lauren Sharp, owner of Empower Method Nutrition. We are food freedom registered dietitians who have struggled with mental health, poor body image, and disordered eating behaviors. We are on a mission to dismantle diet culture, normalize conversations around mental health, and empower you as you heal your relationship with food and your body. Let's get talking. Hey, hello, hello. We are so excited to have Marissa from The Binge Nutritionist, Marissa Millick, and I just can't wait for this conversation. So I'm so excited. Thanks guys for having me on the podcast. (laughs) Why don't you tell us a little bit just about the work that you do, how you got into the work that you do, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. Well, let's make a long story short then. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Like Lauren said, I'm Marissa Kaimilik. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist, and I primarily specialize in working with people with binge eating. And the way that I got into this was, I guess I got into this my own issues with food. It wasn't like a a transition after I became a dietitian or anything like that. I solely went back to school to become a dietitian because of my own recovery story. So yeah, I had a disordered relationship with food slash an eating disorder starting when I was around 16 years old. And that carried into my early twenties. And originally I wanted to be an actress and I've told this story on other podcasts and on other (laughs) videos before, but originally Originally, I was pursuing a career in the television and film industry in Los Angeles. And of course, as many people can guess, the entertainment industry is flooded with diet culture and toxic body standards. And so I got really sucked into that. And that became a lot of my sole focus and purpose out there was manipulating my body or just how I I looked in order to like like somehow thinking that was going to get me to my dream role. But that obsession just got bigger and bigger and bigger until that was my whole world. So I got kind of thrown into this binge restrict and purge cycle that was just completely taking over my whole life. I had a rock bottom moment where I realized that this is what my life had become completely about. And that's not what I wanted it to be about. There were just so many more important things I wanted to do with my life than miss out on it for food or bodies, lack of confidence. And I kind of had a turning point where I discovered intuitive eating and went on my own journey to recover. And I say my own journey because it was difficult for me to find help because I was often dismissed because I look quote unquote normal, whatever that means. And so I couldn't get a diagnosis of any kind to get into a recovery center or find treatment. So i did it by myself and I don't recommend. (laughs) I really didn't like it. There were so many uncertainties to doing it on my own. And once I got to a place where 
I was feeling confident in myself and my journey. I was like, man, nobody should have to go through this alone. So I completely packed up my life in LA, moved back home to West Virginia and went back to school to become a registered dietitian. And now six years later, here I am. And I have my own virtual private practice where I specialize in helping people get out of the same destructive disordered eating patterns that I was in for so many years. Trying to make that a long story short, but how do you you give all the juicy details without talking for an hour? (laughs) I feel like I have only heard bits and pieces of your story, but we've never like fully chatted through the whole thing. So it's so interesting to hear because... Especially the actress background, which I can totally see if anyone follows you on Instagram. I always say this, like you come off so natural and you can tell that you thrive on camera in the best way possible. Yeah. I feel like I got the best of both worlds a little bit now. Like I have my passion for working with relationships with food, but I also get to bring out my creative, more acting side through my content. So it's really fun. Thank you. (laughs) Amazing. Wow. I mean, yeah. And I think that this idea, which like Brie Campos always says, which is you kind of look at life with rose colored glasses when you're dieting. And so, you know, you said that you thought like, oh, if I only got this like perfect body, I would land that dream role. And I would, you know, be in a position where I'd just be so happy. And I would love to hear how and when you realize, okay, like this isn't sustainable and this isn't helping me. So like, at what point did you realize like that you had an eating disorder enough to seek help or at least try to seek help? It sounds like. Yeah. Well, it's obviously, I know the moment, my turning point, my rock bottom moment and when everything kind of clicked for me, but lead to that, there were multiple moments where I talked to a dietitian about what I was eating and she was like, Oh, that feels good for you and satisfying. Then that's fine. And I, I'm now being a dietitian, look back and I'm like, what? I would never, ever, I would be so concerned if someone showed me that. And then told my doctor that I was struggling with like purging sometimes. And she just told me that was a bad idea and I should stop doing that. (laughs) It's like, okay, great. I'm Um, healed. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And then I, you know, reached out to one treatment center and they said I had to have a referral or a diagnosis, you know, went to OA and that just didn't really land for me with the way that that program goes about recovering it. It just, I didn't resonate with that. And so I think just over time and how consistent the binges got for me, I was exhausted. So I was looking for help, but I didn't really realize how difficult it was going to be. But I also kept getting really invalidated that, Mm -hmm. oh, I wasn't really sick enough because I wasn't emaciated or I didn't have anorexia or whatever. And so I kept getting invalidated. But really, when I hit my rock bottom moment, it was after an event in LA. It was an app launch. So, you know, I'm in my early 20s in Los Angeles going to an app launch. Like, that's so cool. But I was so obsessed with the macaroons on this buffet table that I wasn't networking. I wasn't talking to anyone. I wasn't feeling happy. I just couldn't stop thinking about the food. And when I got home, I had this huge binge and I realized that not only had my pursuits of becoming an actress become so like clouded by food and diet culture, I also realized at that exact same event that what I thought was being a successful actress wasn't what I thought it was. And what I mean by that was there was a section of the event that was closed off for people who had more than 10,000 followers on Instagram. And I was like, 
I thought this world was about talent, but time after time again, I found that I was only validated if I had a certain following on Instagram or YouTube, or if I was hitting a certain beauty standard. And so I was constantly fighting these things that were really outside of my control while I was trying to work on my craft to be an actress. And I was like, this is just not why I got into this. It's not what I fell in love with when I did stage acting growing up. And so I think all of that together really hit me that night after the launch of I hate feeling invalidated for my disordered eating. And I also hate feeling invalidated for not having tens of thousands of followers on Instagram and that somehow needing to be the requirement for becoming a successful actress out there. So it really was a rock bottom moment in many different elements, but it was a huge turning point for me. So I hope that kind of answers your question because there's just so much that led up to that moment. Totally. Yeah. And you mentioned, well, kind of what Brittany was getting at there too, of just like associating body size with success, right? Because ultimately like body image is so complex. And I wanted to kind of get into that a little bit of just like, how does body image play into all of this? But we associate body size with worth, with success, with all of these different things. And I think that's a big piece of all of that on top of like the followers piece and having that pressure as well. Uh, but the diet bottom, it sounds like it was a lot of bottoms for you, but I always talk about how certain people, when I get on a uh, discovery call with people, I'm like, either you can really tell they're at diet bottom and they're like, I cannot do this anymore. Or they're maybe at that place where they're like, I just want to try one more thing. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I think that's kind of how my recovery started. Mm -hmm. I started doing what I call like a pseudo recovery where I was trying to stop the binge restrict cycle without gaining weight. (laughs) It was like every effort to give up restriction and give up dieting and stop binging, but only if I didn't gain weight from those efforts. And so I had a lot of resistance there that of course kept the cycle spiraling. So that was kind of like my maybe one last try and one last effort of staying in this world of controlling my body until a few months later, I was like, oh my God, this is not ending. Like it's still going on, whatever. I don't care anymore because I was just so exhausted. So it Mm -hmm. did, I did have that moment of sort of like pseudo recovery. And unfortunately, I think that's where... A lot of people get into not feeling like intuitive eating works for them because they go into it with that still resistance of if I gain weight, this means this isn't working when really that's part of the healing process. Absolutely. And also going back to the pseudo recovery or, you know, pseudo dieting or whatever it is, when there is mental restriction there, you cannot fully recover. So Mm -hmm. people will say, well, I'm allowing myself to eat all these foods, but I'm still overeating. I'm still doing all these things. And it's like, well, you're still thinking in your mind that these foods are bad. And so as long as you are mentally restricting, that cycle is still going to continue. Yeah, any sort of judgment should thoughts around food and what you're allowing yourself to have is a form of restriction, even if it doesn't feel like it's a physical restriction. And so that's exactly right. That's why with healing a relationship with food, we're working towards unconditional permission to eat, not just permission to eat all foods, but it has to be unconditional. And we forget that conditions are, oh, I can have pizza, but just one slice. Or I can allow myself to take a rest day, but not too many in a row. Like those conditions keep us from fully feeling free around food. Totally. 
And I think that's why that's such a big piece of this whole process is that self-trust, right? And trusting that your body knows what it needs. But it's so hard when for years, maybe even decades for some people, you've been looking to a calorie counter or the scale or a specific meal plan or diet to tell you exactly what to eat. You're like, my body doesn't actually know what I need. Like I need something external to tell me. But I think that is one of the biggest pieces in recovery is trusting that you have to trust this journey and trust this process. And like you said, not put those conditions around it. Yeah. And I think it's important when we think about trusting our body, it's the exact same thing if we've had a broken trust in a relationship in our life. It doesn't come back with a simple apology or overnight. It takes time to rekindle that and to have some trial and error in building back that trust. So if overnight you decide, okay, I'm done dieting and I want to cultivate this peaceful and trusting relationship with food, it's not a light switch. You're going to have to navigate through this time of healing. And so giving yourself that space to make mistakes is important as well so that you can build back the trust instead of just expecting it to happen overnight. So what do you suggest to someone when they first are starting out on their binge, you know, eating recovery journey? Like where does one begin? I mean, of course, finding, seeking out professional help, but where does someone even begin? that process? Yeah, that's such a great question. Of course, seeking help. But I think even before that, you have to know why you're doing it for you. I have worked with so many people who have gone through treatment in all sorts of different capacities, but never felt quote unquote successful through those attempts because it was for someone else. You know, their mom checked them in, their family gave them an ultimatum. They felt like they had to because of their doctor or whatever it is, it was for someone else. Recovery really has to be for you and you have to feel like it's worth it because if we do it for someone else, it's never going to be sustainable or be as impactful as it could be if we were seeking our own reasoning and seeking our own freedom. And so the first step I take with even all of my clients are writing down your why. Why are you seeking recovery? Why are you seeking food freedom? And really making that descriptive and impactful to motivate you when the going gets tough. So yes, you know, finding your communities on Instagram or Facebook or, you know, seeking help from a professional like a dietitian or a therapist is so, so, so important. But even before you go into that, to find the motivation to even look for resources, I highly suggest figuring out why it's important for you to recover. I love that. Me too. And also going back to the why, it's so important to continue to remember that and to have the why with you, especially in like the culture that we live in. It is so entrenched in diet culture and it's really hard to recover. And oftentimes, I'm sure you can speak to this as well, but eating disorders play a role. There is a reason why they're there. Oftentimes they're used as a form of coping. And so we need to remember why it is important for us to heal. And regardless of what else is going on in our life, just having that always available to us. And I like how you said to, you know, keep it more descriptive as well. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. I mean, eating disorders, any way that we manipulate food or our bodies, it is a source of control, which is often a stress relief or a form of instant gratification for us. And so for someone like myself, I used food and controlling my food as a way of getting control in my life when 
everything else felt out of my control because truly landing a role in the acting industry is out of your control. But all I knew I could control was oh, my, my body or my food. But what I couldn't control was the impact that would actually have on my body. So I didn't realize that at the time. And so through my recovery, every time I felt like going to control food, I actually had the discomfort of, a lot of this is out of my control. Whether or not I control food or my body, there are gonna be things that are out of my control and maybe that's just what I need to make peace with. And so that's why a big part of what I talk about with my clients as well, that's not food related, is finding a connection to the here and now. I always recommend the book, The Power of Now. It's like my favorite not food related recovery book because it just helped me to stop worrying so much about what I did to myself in the past and worrying so much about where I would be in the future, but instead, okay, today on April 26, 2021, what do I need in this moment? What is my life right now? And how can we just stay focused on that? At least for a little while, it's of course great to have dreams and goals and, and look ahead, but in recovery, especially staying in the present moment was really important for me to kind of stop that, I don't know, coping skill with the unknown. Totally. I was the same exact way. Like I never, first of all, never even realized I had a problem. So I was just going to therapy for my anxiety and it was the same thing for me. It was control. And really when I got a handle on my anxiety is really when my relationship with food started to heal because it was all about control for me. And it's not that for everybody, but for a lot of people. And I love what you say too, about like, it's out of your control, what this like specific eating or however you feel like you're controlling your food, what that does to your actual body shape. And I think so many times, whether it's in the media, for me personally, it was like this workout program that I wanted to look like this girl. And I'm like, oh, if I just follow her nutrition plan, if I just, you know, follow this exercise routine, I'm going to look like her. And that's just not true that you shouldn't be doing it to look a certain way. You should be doing it to feel a certain way. If that's what the type of workouts that make you feel really good. And that's how eating makes certain types of, I hate to say diet, but like what your actual, like overall diet looks like, right. Meaning just your way of eating, but it, it's crazy how much we can associate how somebody else looks and think that by just doing what they're doing is going to make us look that way as well. Yeah. And half the time, the people who create these health and fitness plans, they're naturally thin. And so now they just get to profit off of their genetics when... So true. Yeah. And it's so frustrating because the same exact thing, you know, I did that one, I don't even know if I want to call it out, but one workout plan that everyone did and it was like 12 weeks and all these crazy results. Lauren, you're nodding your head. You might know what I'm talking about. It was super popular in like, I don't know, 2015-ish, 2014, right? It's probably still popular now, but it was like, I was just always seeking to look like the girl who created it. When now in my recovered brain and with everything I know, I'm like, she has always naturally had a very lean body and a very tall body. So technically following her food and fitness plan doesn't guarantee you'll look like her because you don't have her genetics. And that is really frustrating because you just see these people profiting off of something that's entirely out of our control. 
It's also like the lie that we're told time and time again, diet culture, the diet industry. If only you follow this plan, like you will look like this person. And so we begin to think that we are the failure. We are the reason as to why we don't look like this person when it is, it's exactly what you said, Marissa, it's our genetics. And there is a quote that's constantly circulating on social media, which is we could all eat the same and work out the same and we would still look completely different. And so, you know, it's so important to recognize body diversity and understand that genetic is a really big piece of how people look. So yeah, it's upsetting when you constantly are just trying to strive. And I truly fear for younger generations whose entire life is social media. I feel like we were sort of on the cusp where like maybe Facebook was introduced, you know, Instagram was introduced in college, but now we have TikTok and all of these other apps where they distort bodies. And these poor children and teens think like this is normal, like this is their reality. So it's really scary. It is, it is. And I think there's different, I don't know, categories of social media where on one end, if you curate your social media feed to promote body diversity, you're likely going to feel a lot better about yourself by seeing different bodies and different people and people who you resonate with. And so, but on the other hand, if you're somebody who doesn't understand curating your social media feed, like you're somebody who's just 15 and on TikTok, then you're actually more likely to be exposed to those more like toxic body standards. Completely. All right. So what quick tips would you give to people who they have these fear foods, right? Like certain foods that they are associating with being quote unquote bad. What would you say to them to when they're struggling with reintroducing those fears? Yeah, I think that there are really two approaches you can take. I've worked with some clients and myself included who did that more all in approach where you say, okay, no foods are off limits. I'm working on my mentality around all foods. I'm just going to eat what I want, when I want, however much I want. And I really don't care. But I think you really have to have a special mindset to approach it in that way and not have a full on panic attack because there's a lot of uncertainties of will I ever stop eating these foods or am I just going to eat less nutritious foods for the rest of my life in large quantities? So really? with people who find that more of an overwhelming approach, I usually say just start with one food. A big component of this is mindset. So if introducing a ton of your different fear food categories at once makes you more anxious and more judgmental, probably not going to be a helpful path to go down. So pick one food that you just want to work to normalize and let's introduce it in your day and not let's not introduce it only in your day, but let's make it planned. Because when we say, okay, I'll have it in the cabinet and it's there when I want it there could still be that diet culture resistance in your brain saying, oh, well, do I really want it? Am I just bored? Like, should I have, do I need it? And so I like to say, let's plan it. Even if just for a week, say, I'm going to have peanut butter with my breakfast every single day this week and start to make that a normal planned experience. But not only that, we need to work on our mindset and judgment around it. Are you going to judge yourself if you go back for seconds? Why? What's the fear there? So without, you know, totally diving into this on an individual basis on a podcast, it really is not only about introducing the food, but also examining those 
you know, what they call the food police voice that comes up when you're allowing yourself to eat those foods. And how can you start to dissect those and the fears around them to start to feel more neutral? Because most of these food police voices that come up in your head when you're eating previously off-limit foods are unreasonable. They're black and white and really health isn't black and white. And so how can we start to remind ourselves in our brain of the truth of the matter, which is eating peanut butter or going back for seconds with peanut butter is something to do. And you know that I think that takes a lot of time and working through that with someone if you can. Totally. That mental restriction is the amount of people that say, I don't understand. Like I am allowing myself these foods. And I was in that place too, where I'm like, why am I still wanting to eat all of the sugary and and carbs and things like that? Um, (laughs) Why am I still wanting to eat all the sugar and carbs and those types of foods when I'm allowing myself them? Right. But really it's the mental restriction piece and I guess that's kind of another question is how do you erase that morality, right? The morality that you're associating with the food, because that's really what's causing you to still have that mental battle. Yeah. Well, first I want to say in general, the faster you can get to unconditional permission to eat, the faster you'll probably start stop binging. So we really have to look at those food judgments and say, all right, what's worth it? You know, judging myself for eating extra spoonfuls of peanut butter or finally stopping the binge eating. And so Mm. really trying to just say, whatever, I'm going to eat what I want and go through this uncomfortable period of eating a lot more of these previously off-limit foods, that's going to be super important when healing from binge eating. But for some people that may take a lot longer to rationalize. So when it comes to kind of rationalizing it or breaking free from this morality between good and bad food, it really starts with first understanding that the idea that there are good foods and bad foods is all or nothing. It's black and white. It's saying that, oh, a pizza is bad all of the time or a bad food to reach for when is that a bad thing if your Italian grandmother made that for you with love and you're enjoying it with her on, you know, a trip to see her that you only get to see her once a year? Or is that a bad choice if you're out celebrating your best friend's birthday and they order pizza and it's just part of the social celebration? In that instance, that is actually probably the most healthful decision you could make because you're enjoying the social atmosphere. You're having fun. You're happy. There's connectedness. If you're an aunt or grandma, like there's family. And so it's important to recognize that health is not simply the nutrition you eat. It's also so many other things like social. So first it's about understanding that, that it really isn't black and white. And second, it's about retraining our thoughts. So if we've been trained for years, if not decades, that pizza is bad, that thought is likely going to come up when you reach for pizza, right? But we have to be aware of that thought and then question it, the validity of it, if it's helpful, you know, if that's, you know, something that's truthful, even just for you, not objectively, but more subjectively, you know, how is that going to be helpful for your relationship with food? And then reframing the thought in some way to something that's more helpful. So even if you can't jump from pizza is bad to, oh no, pizza is fine. It could be more of a reframe around when I restrict pizza, I binge. So avoiding the pizza isn't actually a helpful behavior to engage in. 
So transitional reframes like that might be helpful as well to just simply stating the fact of, in my experience or in my past experience, when I feel restricted around pizza, I binge on it anyway. So I'm going to allow myself to eat it, even if I'm not totally sure how I feel morally yet about this. So first, of course, catching ourselves when we're having these negative judgmental thoughts around food and then getting to a place where we can reframe it to something that's more helpful and truthful to this new path that we're going on with our relationship with food. Totally. Which I know you both know. (laughs) And we all work so, so much on it. I mean, that's just, it's honestly one of the biggest things that I do in in my work and with my clients is those challenging thoughts, challenging those thoughts and reframing them. Yep. And I also love the like reframe that kind of transitional reframe you were talking about with, it's actually in the intuitive eating book, but it's like the concept of satisfaction, right? So if you're going to have like a salad loaded with veggies and there's no like cheese or anything in there, I mean, there's satisfactions different for everybody. But for me, like if I don't have cheese in a salad, if I don't have some sort of carb in a salad, like even if I'm full, technically, like my stomach is full, I'm still going to be reaching for food. So reminding yourself like with quote unquote bad foods, it's like, okay, well, this might actually satisfy you more, which leads to less subsequent food intake, which like, you know, obviously the purpose isn't like, oh, let's eat less, but that's literally in the intuitive eating book about how the satisfaction piece is so important. And also that reminding yourself that anything with calories is energy. Like calories is we've made it into this like whole thing when really it's just how we measure the energy we're putting into our bodies. So if something's 400 calories versus 200 calories, try and reframe that and say like, okay, I'm getting 400 units of energy. Yeah. I was just actually having this conversation with someone the other day about how we think in diet culture that eating less is almost always healthier. But if you're eating all of the most nutritious foods, you know, salads and, you know, egg whites, whatever, you know, diet culture, BS, clean foods you can think of. If you're eating all of that food with so many nutrients in it, but you're still coming up short on the amount of calories that your body wants to thrive in, that's not healthy because eating less, being in a consistent caloric deficit is bad for your gut health. It's bad for your immune system. It's bad for your mental health. And so, and I want to emphasize immune system, because if we don't have enough energy, we can't recover, we can't heal, we can't fight off illness. And, you know, from being in a clinical position at one point in my clinical dietetic internship, if someone's ill in the hospital, we're not trying to pump them with kale. We're trying to just give them calories. Like we're like, take this insure. Let's hook you up to a tube feed if we have to. Like all we want is for them to have calories because that is what our body needs most over any other nutrient. Our body's very smart. It can hold on to certain nutrients. It'll let us know if we're in certain deficiencies, but the idea that eating less is somehow the healthy thing to do is just really flawed in many ways. And that's just kind of one way to, to point that out. It's so true. I'm actually a living example of that. So in my most disordered days, my blood pressure was too low. I developed hypothalamic amenorrhea. I stopped menstruating. My labs were horrible. I was deficient in vitamin B, vitamin, like every single vitamin and mineral I was deficient in. I had no energy. Like, so yes, I was eating less. I was eating the most nutrient dense diet you can possibly have. And yet I was truly the most unhealthy that I ever was. And I always think back to that because people would watch me eat. They're like, oh my God, like you're so healthy. And it's like, 
but I wasn't. And let's, you know, this food therapy podcast, let's talk about the mental health. And I know you mentioned that, but when we are so obsessed and rigid with our food rules, that isn't authentic health. And so you cannot be, you know, you can't have true health if mental health is really suffering, especially when it relates to food. Yeah. And I think that goes along with how forgotten the effect has on our health. And so if our mental health is down because we're obsessed with food or or feeling pressure to change our body, stress is not a healthful thing. And so if our attempts at optimal health and wellness is causing us stress, then there's another way, you know, that's definitely not a healthful thing to be engaging in. Super. Totally. So a lot of times I hear, you know, I'm overeating. I can't stop eating this one food. I'm binging. And a lot of times that will be followed with like, I'm just addicted to food. Do you feel that food addiction is a real thing? Short answer, no. (laughs) (laughs) Long answer. There's a lot of misconceptions around food being addictive because of some really old simple studies that show that rats have similar dopamine response to sugary foods when given them that you would see in a response to drugs. But the fact of the matter is that the main difference, and I actually just had a conversation about this with Amanda White, the therapist of Therapy for Women. I had a conversation with her on my podcast about this and she explained it really great. But the main difference being that if you take away food, you're going to want food more. But if you take away drugs that doesn't necessarily make you want it more long-term. Obviously there's that, you know, period of withdrawal that you might have to get through. But if you give more food, eventually you stop wanting more food. But if you give more drugs, you continue to want more and more and more and more. And so to compare food to drugs, you know, they're just the mechanisms of the way that our body reacts to having more or less of it are completely different. And so telling yourself that you're addicted to food is likely a sign that you feel an incredible pull to eat food when you're allowing yourself to have it. But the reason that that is there is not simply an addiction, you know, a problem with your body. It's likely coming from something like restriction, food judgment, you know, weight stigma, difficulty coping with your emotions, et cetera. It's not actually coming from addiction. And in that conversation we were having on my podcast, she was like, even getting a hug has the same dopamine response as doing drugs. So it doesn't mean hugging is addictive. And I was like, that's such a good point. You know, that correlation does not mean that they're inherently the same thing. So no, food addiction is not something that is a real thing. It You may be totally valid in feeling addicted to food, but that doesn't mean that you truly have an addiction to food because you would approach it completely differently than, you know, a, a drug or alcohol problem. We also can't be addicted to something that is our quite literally our most basic need. And so as humans, we don't need drugs and alcohol. We need food to survive. And so it would be very challenging to be addicted to something that our bodies require to survive and function optimally. Exactly. I mean, technically we are, I guess, addicted to food if because we have to have it every day. And if we don't, we really need more of it. So in that sense, Yes, but no, I mean, you're exactly right. And you can't treat it the same way. You know, you can't be abstinent from food or water or drinks or anything like that, but 
you know, that's technically the general like line of approach for drug addiction, but that's literally impossible with food. Totally. Okay. Well, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us. Where can our followers find you? Of course. Yeah. This was a great followers, listeners. listeners. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This was a a really great conversation. I love the, just kind of like bouncing back and forth on these topics. It's just super, it's super fun to talk about all these nuances in the recovery world. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah. Everyone can find me on Instagram at binge.nutritionist. And I also have a podcast called Behind the Binge. So you can find me there as well. But otherwise through Instagram, you can find me and so many other different links. So that's a good place to start. (laughs) Yay. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Food Therapy. If you enjoyed what you heard and want to support our podcast, please subscribe, hit download and share it with your community. We value your feedback. If you feel inspired, please leave a review. Let us know what you've learned and what you would like to hear next. All information about this episode will be linked in our show notes. New episodes of Food Therapy come out every Sunday, but you can stay connected with Food Therapy all week long by following us on Instagram at foodtherapypod. As a disclaimer, this podcast should not replace therapy or working with a registered dietitian. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.